A Pan Am Lockheed Constellation takes off out of Karachi on its way to Istanbul when something goes wrong. What caused this flight to make a crash landing in the desert? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. Hello. Welcome to our new patron, Nell Bells. Hello. Thanks. Welcome. Also, big thank you to the Museum of Flight. Yes. We went to Seattle this weekend and they gave us passes to get in for free. For yes. us and our guests. So been, many thanks. Yeah. We've been chit-chatting with them a little bit over time. And hopefully we'll have a lot more to bring for you from that in the future. But we have more conversations to be had. Yes. But huge thank you to them. And please go to your local aviation museum and fly to Seattle to go to that museum because it's yeah. super cool. Yeah, the Museum of Flight is really cool. There's some really cool pieces of history there. There's cool things you can actually go inside and walk around. It's it's a really neat museum. It's got some just really cool history. So just want to put in that little plug since they were nice enough to give us passes. Yes, it so. was very nice. We did not get recognized as celebrities there, unfortunately. No. Even though we had so many logos. <laughs> yes, all the logos. <laughs> when we were boarding the plane to Seattle, the first officer was standing on the jet bridge and read my shirt, which said hard landings. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I really hope we don't have one. I'm like, listen, <laughs> we have this podcast, you see. Yep. And then I got on, and he was like, another one, huh? I'm like, yeah, I'm the third of the trio. <laughs> <laughs> and then when we got off, I was the first one to get off, because we'll talk about it later, but your girl had to pee. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I almost had an accident in front of a bunch of adults, okay? It was almost very embarrassing. <laughs> but he was like, we didn't have a hard landing. I'm like, you are correct, sir. It was very smooth. It was nice. So there you go. There was the little bit of, we'll talk more about it in the post episode, I'm sure, but. Yeah. A little bit of our trip from this weekend. Yes. So we got another story today. So aviation stories are still pouring in. Yeah. We find time to record. I'm sorry. That. It's fine. We literally, guys, we have no time. Because we're, we're pre-recording for when we're gone. And there's like there's Mother's Day coming up, which like, yeah. unfortunately, there's all these big things happening. Like Easter happened. And so we can't record on the day that we normally record, so we have to move it. But then when we move it, we don't have enough time. Or sometimes, like, they have to work because they work on Mondays, and so they can't do that. And then I can't do it on a Tuesday, and it's a <laughs> giant mess, guys. The gist of all of this is that you will be getting your normally scheduled episodes every week while we are gone. But there may or may not be anything else. Yeah. <laughs> We're working on it. We are trying really hard. We're working there on it. There is so much going on. In other news, this weekend from when we are recording, Leo is turning 21, and you have all heard him before. Wish him a merry 21st. Yep. All right. Well, what are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Pan Am Flight 121. Thank you to our patron, Megan, for recommending this. Yes, thanks. I'm also going to apologize in advance. I'm coughing a lot, and it may not be able to get cut out all of the time, so... You have been warned. So this one might be short-ish. It's not going My to... part is short. My part's not as short as actually I thought it would turn out. But we do have a lot of interesting things to talk about with this one. So I think it was worth covering for sure. This accident occurred on June 18th of 1947. Taking it back. Taking it way back. This is two years post-World War II. Oh, God. I didn't even think about it that way. It is 
old. This was a Lockheed Constellation model 049 with the tail number or the registration November Charlie 88845. It was also known as the Clipper Eclipse. Because Pan Am did that. Yep. yep. The leg in particular that we're talking about is part of a return trip from Karachi, India, which is now Pakistan, by the way, to New York via Istanbul. I couldn't find any other stops, but I know there were more. There had to be. I think Rome. Had to be. I think Rome was one of them because that was one of their stops on the way to Karachi. And Gander probably as well. And probably Gander, yes, in Newfoundland. So I think that's the case. <laughs> I, or probably more. I cannot find it. It wasn't in the report, which was not very long. It wasn't on Wikipedia. It wasn't on the ASN. It wasn't on anything I could find. I'm sure that information is somewhere, but I couldn't find it. But I wanted to try to find all the factual information. We will be talking about the leg from Karachi, India, to Istanbul, in Turkey. Captain for the flight was Joseph Hart Jr., he was 40 years old at the time. He had 12,768 hours total, of which 1,009 were on the type, were on the Constellation. The Constellation, by the way, is a large quad-engine piston airplane. That is important. It is important. It's a very odd-looking airplane, honestly. You just have to look it up to know what I mean. Didn't we see one at the... Yes, the one that's right outside. Museum of Flight, yeah. Is that a super constellation? That is a super constellation. This is not a super constellation. This is just a constellation that we are talking about. Okay. It's an odd airplane. Look it up. That's all I have to say. I can't explain any more than that. There are probably pictures on the website, so... Yes. It's very rounded. The first officer was Robert McCoy. He was 25 years old. He had 3,178 hours total, of which 674 were on the Constellation. Then there was a flight engineer, Robert Donnelly... He was 33 years old, and he had 799 hours as a flight engineer. Okay. Full stop. Okay, cool. Then there was also a deadheading pilot named Gene Roddenberry. He was 25, and I couldn't find Bowers. So there's that. He does come up a few times in this story, so it is important. And And a lot in the second half. So he's deadheading on this. He is also one of, he is a pilot. He will come up quite a few times, even though he wasn't really supposed to be part of the flight crew. Stringent regulations and things, they were pretty... This is 1947, people. Yeah. If you do so choose to read the report, which you could, I guess, it is only like five pages, Mm -hmm. you may also see him referred to as the third officer. Right. I had him listed as the third officer. What does deadheading mean? Deadheading just means he is basically returning from work. So he more than likely flew this airplane to Karachi. At some point in time, he was part of the crew. And at this point in time now, he is just- Heading home. Heading home. On the flight. He is not on duty, but he is still acting as an employee and has to comply with the standards of being a crew member that's deadheading. It's like when we see people take flights home on the same airline. Yep. They They have to be in uniform and they have to, you know, behave like they would if they were a crew member. Yep. Like you can't be belligerently disgusting. (laughs) Right. Well, you shouldn't do that anyway. You, but, no. but people do. I know. You, you know, I don't think we saw any of that on any of our flights. Biggest thing but. you can't do when you're deadheading, <laughs> drink. That makes sense. <laughs> you can't drink. <laughs> technically, you're on duty. Yep. So, yep. And we've, we've talked other times about deadheading crew members, flight or cabin, being helpful in yep. accidents. So Because they're there. Yep. Yeah. And they have the training. One more note on that. You also can still be considered deadheading even if you are flying on the airline that you do not work for. Yes. Yeah, we saw an Alaskan pilot come home on Frontier. We were on Frontier. Yes. They this were deadheading. Is, yeah. This is super He was in common. uniform. 
Right. This is super common. To this day, it's still called deadheading, and it's super common. And I mean, yeah, the flight crews will fly home on whatever plane they can put them on. The aircraft departed to Karachi at 8.37 p.m. local time. There's only a few times where I'm going to use local time because it's in GMT. They cross several time zones. Things have also changed. These time zones have also changed. So Lord knows what time it was. I cannot figure it out. So I know that they took off at 8.37 p.m. local time. That's one of the only things I know. <laughs> the rest awesome. of it's going to be in GMT. Okay. Pretty much. Otherwise known as UTC or Zulu. Yes. All of those things. They reported it as GMT in the report. That is why I'm doing this. Old reports. Yay. Fun. They departed with 26 passengers and 10 crew. This was a pretty common thing back then where you had quite the crew to passenger ratio on these flights. This is a relatively small aircraft, right? At the time, like it, it can't wasn't. can't hold that many people. At the time, it wasn't, but well, yes. But I mean, compared it's to today, standards. Yes, compared to today, it's small. Yes. Okay. Yes, it doesn't have very many seats, but they were big, luxurious seats that people paid an insane amount of money for. The planned flight time from Karachi to Istanbul was ten and a half hours. Ew. Well, they have to like <laughs> fly lower and slower. Oh yeah, so. it's a whole a whole different world. Disgusting. It's a whole different world. <laughs> Lauren does not sugarcoating anything. I hate flying for more than two hours, okay? It was a different experience back then, but also there weren't great things about it, too. I mean, sure, the seat's super comfortable. Big, giant, lots of leg room. Good service with food. There was, like, games and things you could do. A lot of these airplanes even had, like, onboard lounges and stuff that were really nice, like big seats, checkers tables, and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time... You pretty much couldn't talk to one another. Because <laughs> it was so loud. <laughs> the, the part that nobody seems to ever talk about is the fact that it was just so loud all the time. Four engines, four very large piston engines. Yeah, there wasn't much in the way of talking to be had. And it's only going to get louder. Yep. They had an estimated arrival time of 3.08 a.m. local time. That I also know. Gross. Mind you, that was just a stopover, so more than likely they weren't doing anything other than fueling there. The climb to 18,500 feet for their cruising altitude was normal. Like we said, they fly lower and slower. The flight was proceeding direct, quote-unquote, to Istanbul. Essentially, pretty much in a straight line. There wasn't much between the two airports. There wasn't much reason to deviate, so it was pretty much right there. About halfway through the flight, five hours in, Gene Roddenberry took over for the captain to allow him to take a break. So he went into the captain's seat. That would not happen today. No, that is not how that works. Deadheading crew don't, they are not part of the flight crew and will not be. In an absolute, maybe worst case scenario, it's not to say that maybe couldn't happen, but this in was an just an emergency. A, right, but this is just a normal operation and he was just like, hey, you want to take a break? I'll fly. I don't like that. Uh, the great old days <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where you didn't have to have like duty time, duty times yeah. and you didn't have to have, you know, it didn't matter. Authorization. Yeah. Oh boy. You could just walk in the cockpit. I mean, it was probably just an open. I'm not even sure it had a door. It probably had like a, maybe a curtain. curtain. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the good old days. <laughs> At that time, the captain left the cockpit and went to take his break. However, a short time after the crew swap, something began to happen. The number one engine began having trouble. The crew attempted to correct the issue, this kind of indescript issue, by feathering the engine, but without success. Runberry then made the decision to shut down the engine, as it was just not running, well, it was not providing them any sort of 
benefit. The captain soon returned to the flight deck. He took control of the airplane and began considering what to do next. He initially wanted to continue to Istanbul with the three engines that they still had. However, the engines were having to work much harder to maintain speed and altitude, which meant that they were not able to maintain adequate cooling either, because they were running super hard, and this is a piston engine. So... This is before the time where they started testing if planes could fly without certain engines, right? They, Not necessarily. This was certified to fly with only three engines. Which would make sense, because yes. that's a lot of engines, right? You yes. have the majority of the engines working. Yes, it's still able to fly. We'll talk about it. They're actually not even close to done flying, but... They're starting to have issues. Maintaining 18,500 feet was basically not possible on the three engines. They were having to run them basically full bore, and in doing so, their piston engines that are cooled via air, yeah, <laughs> the airflow, and therefore, they got hot. They couldn't do it. They basically just couldn't hold up. They subsequently reduced the power and descended to 17,500 feet, so they went down 1,000 feet, but the engines still began to overheat while attempting to maintain that altitude. So where did they have to go down to? The flight crew then opted to descend further to 10,000 feet. Oh, that's quite a drop. Yep. They are now not very high. Is it because the engines aren't getting oxygen? Or? They're just not getting enough cooling. They're having to run them a lot harder to maintain altitude because there's not enough air density. Oh, okay. This is a lot of physics we have to talk about, but when it comes to... I mean, this is this affects all engines, but in particular, non-turboed... Piston engines. Piston engines. That's... Oxygen. There's that, that's a whole discussion we can talk about sometime, but these engines were having to work a lot harder to maintain altitude up there because they don't produce as much torque and power. Okay. Because you need oxygen to combust. Right. And there's less oxygen up there. Correct. Yep. And on top of that, while they're working all that hard, now the fuel mixture is causing it to get hot and there's not enough air coming in, in to, cool it down. to cool it down. Got it. They need thicker air. At 2140 GMT. Or in other words, 940 GMT. That's PM. One hour after the engine failure, the flight crew informed the company radio in Karachi about the engine troubles. They then checked in again at 10 PM GMT, 20 minutes later, to report their position, which was 14,000 feet at the time, and about 50 miles east of Baghdad, Iraq, and 90 miles east of the Royal Air Force Field at Habanya, Syria. So... They decided at some point, and this was not described in the report, but you might have noticed that I just said they were flying at 14,000 at that time. So at some point in time, they climbed back to 14,000. However, that didn't last long. <laughs> Why'd they do that? I don't know. A short time later, the flight reported into the tower at Habanya that their approximate position was about over Baghdad at 10,000 feet. So I'm now so they confused. have descended back, back down to 10,000 feet. They've traveled that... 50 miles, now they're over Baghdad. The flight crew then also requested that all airfields in the area be advised that they were flying on three engines to Istanbul. The tower at Hibanya, though, replied that no other airports in the area were open, and nor would they be until dawn. Awesome. <laughs> it was the middle of the night. Great. But shouldn't yep. they be open in case of emergencies? Well, this is to the 1940s. Way back in the day when there was only like a few airfields that were important. You're talking. This is an Air Force field that they're talking about, too. Yeah. So... I feel like there should still be access to the runway in case stuff happens. I mean, there is, but we're talking about a time where there's no runway lighting. Oh, that's right. At most of these airports, and you're right. Ninety-nine percent of these airfields are still dirt. Yeah. So, right. yeah, there's not much in the way of 
help there. The tower then suggested that an emergency landing be made at Habanya, but the flight crew informed them that they would be continuing to Istanbul anyway. Okay. Talk about this later. I mean, to be fair, they're flying in stable flight That's what with I was three say. working engines. They're, they're in stable flight at 10,000 feet. It's yep. not the end of the world. Right. Everything seems to be relatively hunky-dory. They've already flown more than an hour on three engines at this point. Everything seems to be okay. But this Just is continue. a 10-hour flight, right? So how ten and far, a half hours. how far are they into their 10-and-a-half-hour flight? They're like, at this point, they're having to fly a little bit slower, I imagine. So I imagine they're still a couple hours from landing. Okay. At least. The flight crew then informed the tower that they instead decided to make Damascus their next airport in the event of an emergency. Are they open? The tower subsequently informed the flight that the airports near Damascus, including the airfield at Damascus, would also be closed at that time. However, while all of this is going on, <laughs> so the, the flight crew informed the tower at Habanya that they would still be continuing to Istanbul, and if there was a worst-case scenario, they turned back to Habanya. But one of the other crew members was sending a message to their company radio in Karachi asking Damascus to open, and they did. <laughs> so they knew that... The field would be open if they needed to land there. Right. This did lead the airfield at Damascus to be opened early and the radio to be turned on. So somebody was there and the airport was open. Yay. Yay. It opened like five hours early. Uh, <laughs> can you Those imagine poor, being that, that person? Person who had to get up in the middle, middle of the, of the night, night. Go and open the airport. <laughs> for something that might not even matter. If I got called into work five hours early, you bet I would be swearing up a storm. I would yes. be bitter. I imagine somebody must be living there or nearby. But Is it also, like a lighthouse where you like live <laughs> at the airport? <laughs> it might be. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of GA airports that are actually still that way. People like own them and they live on them. They're public airports. That's just how they are. They just live on the airport and they take care of it. At 2300 or 11 p.m. GMT. Yes, GMT. The flight reported being 75 miles northeast of Habanya. At 10,000 feet. 15 to 30 minutes later, the purser, the lead cabin attendant, right. noticed the seatbelt and no smoking signs had been illuminated in the cabin. So they immediately got up and began waking the passengers to have them buckle up. While this was happening, the cabin suddenly lit up from outside from a fire on the left number two engine area. <laughs> Miranda's confused. What? What? Oh. We've now flown a lot further. We have one engine that's not working and another one that appears to be on fire. That's uh, right, next to it. On the same wing, right yep. next to the fuselage. Yep. The flight crew reported the fire to Habanya at 23.30 or 11.30 p.m. GMT. At this point, they were 170 miles to the northwest of Habanya and 290 miles northeast of Damascus. Oh, so you're like way SOL. Oh, they are so out there. They are in the Find. middle of nowhere. A field. Well, this it, is the desert. It actually turns out that that's pretty much what you do when the engine's on fire. That is pretty much their procedure. That is what they're supposed to do. Land somewhere. When you're on fire, like massively on fire, you put it down. So, immediately after the fire started, the flight crew put the airplane into a rapid descent in order to perform a crash landing. A crash landing was actually a procedure at the time and is to this day in certain cases. A crash landing is a real thing. That is not like a something that happens. After the fact, that is what you plan for. That is the intention. Oh, boy. Needless to say, not fun. Six to seven minutes later, the number two engine burned through and fell off <laughs> of the airplane. Oh, no. Yeah, engines behind. don't fall off of planes. Hey, it doesn't happen very often. 
But when it does, it's very dramatic and it's worth talking about. Hence, we talk about it. This left behind a still very much burning wing. Yeah, no, because there's fuel in it. Yep. That is now on fire. Yep. And an engine. Yep. Which is not working. Right. Less than a minute later, however, the airplane made that wheels up crash landing on a relatively solid but smooth desert below the sand, literally just the sand. The airplane touched down first with the left wing tip, followed by the number one engine propeller, before striking the ground with the rest of the left wing, which then ripped from the fuselage. Yeah, I was going to say, just fell off. (laughs) At this point, it's like dragging it through solid water or concrete or, you know, sand. This caused the aircraft to violently loop to the left, what is called a ground loop. So it spun. You might picture Asiana 214 if you've ever seen the video. Yes. It does basically that. The airplane then skidded 210 feet before coming to rest 400 feet past the first impact point in flames, facing 180 degrees opposite its flight path. Asiana before Asiana. Exactly. But... In a way, this was its own kind of way more dramatic because everything was very much in flames at the time. And everything is very much flammable. Yes, and everything is very much flammable. And the airplane, I mean, it impacted really hard, but to put this in perspective, I mean, yes, it landed at a much slower speed than a 777 does, but it only traveled 400 feet from the point the wingtip hit to the point it stopped. 400 feet is not very far to bring basically 100 miles an hour to a stop. Yes. (laughs) That's a hard impact. And it shows. A hard landing. landing. When it did come to a stop, in pieces, in flames, some surviving passengers and crew, including Gene Roddenberry, helped to remove other passengers and crew from the aircraft. In all, 15 passengers and crew perished in the accident, and 21 passengers and crew survived. So the majority still survived. That could have been worse. However, I think it was only three or four crew members that survived. You might note that none of the actual cockpit crew survived. Gene Roddenberry was not in a pilot seat at the time. In the cockpit, yeah. Yeah. I believe the... It was him, the purser, purser, and one other flight attendant, I believe, that survived. That's what I read. Okay. This investigation was performed by, here's the weird part, the Civil Aeronautics Board, or the CAB. We're in Syria. Point is, this is not the United States. Yeah. So that's a fun flight they had to take. Yeah. Several. But it's probably because it's a Pan Am flight. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, this part of the world does not have aviation at this point. No. This airplane was both going to the U.S., built in the U.S., run by a U.S. airline, with probably U.S. passengers on board, as well as a U.S. crew. So they had every right to be there. Yeah. They're like, we'll just, uh, don't worry about it, we'll come. Granted, those ICAO rules come much later. Yes. For all who care. This is also true. I don't have a whole, whole lot to cover, because the report in its entirety is five pages. Woot woot. And this was... happens. And this was the 1940s. So, investigation techniques were, I don't want to say primitive, but not advanced. Well, they didn't have a CVR and FDR. No, definitely not. Nope. Nope. Not even close. We are far away from that at the time. Very far. So so what do I mean by not advanced? Quote, no difficulty was reported with engines three and four. Accordingly, no detailed examination was made of these engines, end quote. They just didn't even look at them. They were like, I don't know, they're not the problem. I mean, they're not wrong. Doesn't mean they shouldn't look at them. This day, they're not wrong. This day and age, they would still look at them for and a couple of reasons. And give a detailed analysis about them. Well, yes, because it's important to say, hey, maybe whatever was going on with that engine might have yeah. also been going on with those ones, and yeah. it just hadn't happened yet. Yeah. 
the world may never know. Methinks, though. Engine 1 was examined at the accident site and was found to have a fractured exhaust rocket arm of the number 18 cylinder. That. So that's why it stopped working. That's why uh-huh. it shut down. That's something that would definitely make it vibrate very heavily. Oof. And run very rough. And how did that break, you might ask? Fatigue. <laughs> Welcome back to the Fatigue Podcast. What do you know? Miranda, answer that really quickly. <laughs> what if I said you were wrong? That would have been disappointing. No. I'm not wrong. No, you're correct. You are correct. <laughs> what else would it be? This was determined to be the cause of the quote-unquote unsatisfactory operation of that engine. Turns out. Rough running? That, yes. that airplane wasn't that old. No. No. It also wasn't super new. I mean... Well, I just looked at and see it when the Constellation was made. It was yes. about 1945. Yes. So, a couple years old. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, they had to put them through a lot more stuff because yeah. they couldn't fly them as high and they had to fly them for longer and all that stuff, but... Piston engines notoriously wear so much more. Because they have so much more vibration, which leads to... Fatigue. Yep. Da-da-da. They are... Very rough running engine. And if you ever looked at what these engines look like, holy crap. So many pistons, so many moving parts, so many things can go wrong. In we saw engines. a few of them. It's at a miracle. The Boy Museum of Flight. Yeah. it's Some of them are crazy. It's There's a so miracle. Much these things stuff. Like the engines now just are so simple in comparison. To me, it's a miracle that they would be able to fly with all of the parts that they had. I mean, there was whatever it was. There was some airplane. I think it was the DC-6 that they just threw as many pistons into each engine as they could. And it was, I don't even remember. It was like 20 something pistons on one engine. It was heavier. It took exponentially more maintenance. Had plenty of reasons to go wrong and vibrate like crazy. Yeah, that happened with cars, too. All I have to say is thank God for... Technology. Piston engines being pretty much left to GA. (laughs) I'm so happy for the jet age and for turboprops. Let's move on. What engine have we not mentioned yet? Engine number two Two. was found a mile away. Well, it did burn through the wing. And it and its nacelle were burned so badly that investigators could not determine the cause of the fire, necessarily, or engine failure upon examination at the scene. So it was transported back to the U.S. for a more full-fledged examination. Or at least as much as they could transport back, much of engine two was not recovered due to looters in the area. God! Isn't that so great? I mean, I understand... But also, don't touch stuff that's fallen off aircraft. They don't know that. This is early aviation for them. A, Not- a giant freaking engine? They were just like... They didn't take the whole engine. They just took parts, I guess. Anyway. <laughs> There's definitely no such thing as like a controlled crash Same. site there at the time. Well, and especially like because that. it took investigators how long to get there? Yeah. I can't... They didn't mention anything about the search and rescue and how long that took. Right. No idea. Granted, I could probably go read the Wikipedia page, which would tell me stuff, but I am working. I am a purist. I am working off of the report. Anyway, upon a much more thorough examination, it was found that the thrust bearing assembly had signs of excessive wear, including both ball and roller bearings having wear mutilations, namely from frictional heat and the oil seal rings having signs of heat. More examination showed that the number 18 exhaust cam follower roller was worn flat and all but four cylinders showed fire damage, with the major damage being in the area of cylinders 1, 3, 5, and 18. All piston heads showed signs of striking exhaust and intake valves. That's not supposed to happen. No, that's not good. No. 
So something was really wonky about Engine 2, needless to say. Let's delve into its maintenance history, shall we? It had 1,588 hours on it. That's not much. And it had 609 hours since its last overhaul. During the flight from LaGuardia to Gander, the flight engineer noticed a drop in BMEP, which stands for Brake Mean Effectiveness Pressure, so he feathered Engine 2. After landing, the spark plugs were changed and the oil sump plug was examined, but no anomalies were found. They continued their voyage. Another BMEP drop happened, so they diverted back to Gander and found a piston ring failure in Engine 2 in Cylinder 18. That sounds like a familiar number. They replaced the number 18 cylinder and piston assembly and continued their voyage again. Upon arriving in Istanbul, there was another 15 BMEP drop in engine two. Two? Let me guess. Piston 18? Not necessarily. So they looked again and found that the left magneto breaker points were closed. That's not supposed to happen. Mind you, I don't know any of these parts. Yeah, I don't know. I am reading almost verbatim from the report. (laughs) So they re-gapped them. I'm assuming there's supposed to be a gap. And no further malfunction of the engine was experienced until the fire on the return to the U.S. Fire! Based on the wreckage evidence, there was wear damage to the thrust bearing long before the fire, and this damage to the propeller shaft made proper alignment impossible. Which makes sense. Great. This leads to... Vibration and inconsistent engine speed. But why a fire? This was weird. Well, the fuel that fed the fire was not, in fact, fuel. It was engine oil. We spoke of the oil seal rings ever so briefly earlier, as I think I mentioned it in passing. Those seal rings had moved forward because of the thrust bearing failure, which then sealed off almost all of the oil transfer holes. I think seven-eighths of their capacity was blocked. Uh Uh-oh making high oil pressure in the feather line so that if the engine were to be feathered, which the engine would have started vibrating. Well, guess what they did? They feathered engine two. Which made it vibrate. Uh Uh-huh. So since the oil was blocked from getting to the feathering pump, the backup of oil created a high oil pressure in the oil line, which, when subjected to the engine vibration, ruptured. Awesome. This oil would have then sprayed out in an atomized state, meaning it would have been small particles in the air, making it very flammable. Highly, highly flammable. And it would have sprayed directly on the front exhaust collector ring. (laughs) This is just such a great design. (laughs) Anything with the word exhaust uh, means hot. Hot. Yeah. (laughs) The rest is history. And that's all the analysis says. Question. Uh Uh-huh. When did the oil get blocked? Was it before they got to Istanbul? Or Karachi? It's hard to say where exactly those oil seal rings began moving. They don't have the technology to necessarily say. Figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. All Uh, they know is that if you try to feather the engine, it's going to be a bad time. And well, I mean, something else failed, so then they had to feather the engine. They should have engine two working, right? So why would they feather the engine on? Because the thrust bearing system failed, which made the whole thing vibrate. On? Engine two. While on because the flight? It, because it was hot. Because they were running on three engines. So they feathered it? Because it started vibrating, in addition to engine one. Okay. I'm trying to figure out, like... So engine one starts vibrating. Well, yeah. So they feather it. Yes. And that doesn't help. So they shut it off. Hours later, engine two starts vibrating. Right. So they feather it. Okay. And then it bursts into flames. Yes. My question is, is due to... 
only having three engines, would they have been able to, I mean, I don't know if they were planning on crash landing at this point or not, but have a sustained amount of lift with just the two engines and the number two engine feathered? Had the airplane not been on fire? Maybe, but there, probably not. There was, it would have okay. been, I, I would say it would have been better than gliding. Okay. There was, yeah, it was probably, it would have been a better situation to be able to land the airplane than crash it. Right. Since the wing was burned through, which, by the way, I have an interesting point on that. And this comes from the Wikipedia page. Okay. But there's a question that has not been asked, and I'm surprised. Why didn't they use a fire extinguisher in the engine? Well, this is like before they had fire extinguishers. I just assumed no, right? they didn't have no, one. No, they have it. Oh. It didn't work. Oh. You know why? Components of that engine were made of magnesium. Oh, who oh. did that? That's a terrible That's idea. That's a horrible idea. Magnesium's highly flammable. And burns very hot. So that fire extinguisher does nothing. Why the heck did they do that? It says it says on the Wikipedia page, fire suppressant measures failed to extinguish the fire and the engine quickly became <laughs> so hot that the magnesium components began to burn. Well, and then they say that the, the fire illuminated the cabin. Yeah. So magne- magnesium burns. Now that makes extremely sense. Extremely bright. Yes. You can, if you've ever... Don't do this. If you ever set a strip of a magnesium on fire, you cannot look at it. You will burn your retinas. Uh, yeah. yeah. My one of my, my eighth grade science teacher, this blessing of a man. <laughs> yeah, that guy. He tells a group of eighth graders, I'm going to set this piece of metal on fire. Don't look directly at it. Everybody look away. I'm pretty and then sure. you trust the eighth grader not to blind himself. Pretty sure that happened to me when I was in chemistry in sophomore in high school. Yep. The same thing happened. So I am telling you, as assumedly adults, that I do know that there are some children that listen to this. Do not find a strip of magnesium, first of all, good luck, and set it on fire. Please. Also, why would you want to? But just apart from that, I just... Go wanna, YouTube it if you I really have to. I want to know the person that decided that it would be a great idea to put magnesium in an engine. So they don't anymore. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I would think not. I just find it... You know, some of the stuff that we come across, especially with these old crashes, I'm like, who thought that was a good idea? I guess they probably just assumed that if a fire happened, it wouldn't get hot enough to burn the magnesium parts. That was a wrong assumption. And also, if you're just going to put the part there at all, you might want to assume that it's going to burn. Yeah. And if you're going to assume that it's going to burn, you need to put something there that you know extinguishes it, which obviously these fire extinguishers were not made for. So also magnesium is just a bad choice. Horrible choice. For a combustible airplane engine. So I'm trying to Google magnesium. Please link the Wikipedia page for magnesium. If I can remember, for sure. Wright Aeronautical used a magnesium crankcase in the World War II era Wright R3350 duplex cyclone aviation engine. That is this engine, by the way. This presented a serious problem for the earliest models of Boeing B-29 Superfortress heavy bomber when an in-flight engine fire ignited the crankcase. That's a different airplane, but yeah. The resulting combustion was as hot as a 5,600 degrees Fahrenheit. (laughs) Yeah. We we never talk about fires that hot. And could sever the wings bar from the fuselage. Hence the engine fell off the airplane. (laughs) They weren't kidding. I'm... I... Have yet to find the answer of when they found that burning it is a bad idea. Shouldn't they have figured it out when it happened on that airplane? Well, I mean, it's the same engine, probably the same era. Well, you're talking about, I mean, the Boeing bombers were part of 
the whole war, right? So that had to have happened before this. I would think, unless they were flying the super fortress around afterward, which maybe they were. Who knows? They, I mean, the B-29s lasted a long time. They used them through a good part of the Cold War, too. I mean, the jets came along pretty quick, but they proved to be a pretty good resource still. They had so many of them after World War II that they used them for testing. They used them still as just regular bombers. I just want to clarify that where they crashed was in Syria. Yes. Habanya is not. It's still in Iraq, I found out. Good job. So that was my mistake, but they did crash in Syria. Didn't we see a B-29 at... Yes, we saw a B-29 at the Museum of Flight. Oh, that's where we saw it. It was the one next to the B-17. Yes, you are yes. correct. It's the ones that dropped the bombs on... Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. The internet confirms that magnesium is highly flammable, but I'm like, yes, but when did we figure that out? Yeah. I would... Again, I feel like it was probably well known before this... Well, apparently not. Or someone was like, yeah, it'll be fine. No. One of the most Google things is how to ignite magnesium. Please don't. Please don't. You will blind yourself. Okay, well, on that note, we're going to take a break. Short break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Can I read the findings? Do you want to read the findings? How many of them there are there? There is a probable cause, you know. There's eight. Yeah, there's there's. <laughs> I mean, eight. that's not bad. If you really want to read the findings, please be my guest. Number one is exactly what you think it is. Yes, it is. Everybody was authorized to do their jobs. Did yep. do Weight and balance was not a problem. That, that was finding two. Approximately five hours after taking off and while cruising to an altitude of 18,500 feet to Istanbul, the number 18 exhaust rocker arm on engine number one broke as a result of fatigue. fatigue. And the number one propeller was feathered subsequently. The aircraft continued, descending to 10,000 feet, in order to provide adequate cooling for the remaining three engines. About three hours after the loss of engine one, the thrust bearing for engine two failed, which resulted in blocking the passage of oil from the propeller feathering motor to the propeller dome. It's really ironic to me that this happened. I mean, engine one really had nothing to do with this. It's not to say that maybe there weren't, that was, engine two failing was maybe a small consequence of number one. But in reality, it was pretty much just its own thing. Uh Uh-huh. It just was, the engine was running hotter because of the absence of engine one. Yes. And it just so happened that the same cylinder on each engine had an issue. Yep. Engine number 18. 18. Subsequent to the failure of the number two engine thrust bearing, engine oil caught fire in the upper inboard region of zone one of that engine and extended through zones two and three. Do I know where those are? Absolutely not. Nope. Doesn't matter. The engine caught fire. Yep. Catastrophically. Before an emergency landing could be affected, slash made, engine two dropped. It burned through the wing. Literally just fell. And the fire continued in the wing panel. Last finding, the aircraft landed on hard-packed desert sand, ground-looped violently, and came to rest in flames. The probable cause. The board determines that the probable cause of this accident was a fire, which resulted from an attempt to feather the number two propeller after the failure of the number two engine thrust bearing. There are no recommendations. There are no recommendations. So, we have something else to talk about, though. For those of you that have been listening closely, you've either been screaming because you know who he is, or you might recognize the name. 
Gene Roddenberry. It is the very Gene Roddenberry that created Star Trek. This was also his third plane crash. This was his third it's plane crash. the 1940s. They were he, very common. So it's interesting how those three crashes came to be. One, he was a bomber pilot for a B-17 in World War II, and he had a crash with a B-17 after striking some trees. Uh, it was determined that it was not his fault. They did lose two of their crew members on that. And then after that crash, he continued on with the military, with the Air Force, being an investigator for crashes. The irony is strong with this one. He was then subsequently a passenger on a crash while he was an investigator. He then went on to be a commercial pilot and had this accident shortly there later. All of this was in just a handful of years. Again, 1940s. Yes, this uh, is kind of common. Pretty common. (laughs) It turns out that plane crashes were relatively common up until about 2009. Yes. That is when, after 2009, after they put in a bunch of regulations, it kind of didn't really happen. At least a good portion of countries that were catastrophic. I'm not going to say that, yeah, it's not uncommon. Because there's, because, like, runway overruns. Well, there's that kind of stuff. engines catch on well, fire. we have catastrophic GA crashes every single day. Well, that's I'm talking commercial, yes, not GA. Situation. Right. Separate thing. So, but this really is the Gene Roddenberry that started... Star Trek. Star Trek. He, he followed in his dad's footsteps, actually, moved to L.A., joined the police force briefly this guy yeah he joined the police force briefly basically just to get his foot in the door in la while he started writing star trek which he started in 1964 there you go it was then premiered in 1966 and ran for three seasons before being canceled which if we know anything about star trek today (laughs) 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 that was really bad on the part of the whoever canceled it the yeah the Production well, companies. Then they, like restarted it, right? So, well, you got Next Generation ended up being well, super so successful. There were the Star Trek feature films, yes, which he were. produced. Yeah. And then in 1987, the sequel series Star Trek The Next Generation began airing, and he was heavily involved in the initial development, but took a less active role due to health. He passed away in 1991. Four years later. Right. I mean, he was old. Yeah. He and was 25 when it was 1947. And yes. he's he's seen some stuff. Yeah. It was an interesting life for him, needless to say. He was, the, there's there's a whole bit in the Wikipedia page that I didn't want to use too much of because I don't have factual information, again, and we're not the storytelling podcast, sorry. That can be found elsewhere. There is a lot about his story when it comes to this crash. A lot. The majority of the Wikipedia page is about him <laughs> for this crash. That's why that there's an even a Wikipedia page on this crash. Pretty much. Yes, you are correct. Because a large portion of the rescue and all of that... He was not buckled up at the time. He was not buckled up because he was sent back to the passenger cabin to start prepping the passengers for the crash landing. He was back there to assure them that everything was being handled. And then they crashed. He was meant for big things. And he survived. Had he been in the cockpit, he would not have. And we would not have Star Trek. Oh, that's a weird thought. Yes. It would never have happened. Oh, my God. That's a weird butterfly effect. Yep. Isn't it? So, this is one of those things where it's like, yes, there's a lot to tell about his story. There's all the heroic things. He grabbed first aid kits and tended to people and helped them get out of airplanes. And there's there's a lot of 
you know, there's a lot of things that happened in this in regards to him. And it's definitely, I mean... I just want to read a couple... Good for him that he survived. It's amazing. I want to read a couple of details from the evacuation. He and the surviving crew members helped evacuate. One passenger seatbelt would not release until Roddenberry forced it open and helped her out. He continued to help passengers and attempted to extinguish the fires with pillows. I mean, smothering it. Okay. I understand the thought. Eventually, the fire got too bad. The last passenger he pulled out died in his arms. Oh, that's unfortunate. He did take command of the situation as he was the only surviving flight officer, even if he was not technically on duty. Yep. He did become the the commanding officer. officer. Yeah. He helped with first aid, and after sunrise, the raft was inflated and propped up to provide shade and shelter. Mm-hmm. That's thinking smart. Yeah. Shortly afterwards, a number of desert tribesmen approached them. Yep. And... Roddenberry engaged in conversation and stated that he had influenced them to the extent that they only robbed the dead. That's good. I guess it's better than them getting mugged. I guess. Yep. This is some kind of movie stuff. They need to make some kind yeah. of movie out of this. It's no wonder this guy went into filmmaking. Yeah. He had quite His the life. life was a film. It is, a, you know, it, it's hard to imagine going through that much trauma in only so many years with World by War the, II. By the time crashes. he was our age. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. that's even... Oh, God. Isn't that weird? I don't like that. Three by the time he's our age. And then went on to make one of, like, the the best sci-fi... Oh, series. Series. Let's, let's not get so quick to say that. We're going to have some, like, okay, it's Star one of the most Wars fans su- coming it's gonna. Us. It's one of the most successful, for sure. Absolutely. And We're, the underlying... We also said one of the best. Not yes. the best. Yes. One of the best. And usually if you like one, you still like the other in so, to some extent. There are people that don't, I know. And the underlying, like, the whole underlining tone of Star Trek, it's just, you know, amazing that somebody made such a big positive thing. Yeah, totally. Having so much trauma. (laughs) On a tangential note, I don't know if we want to include this, but we, our band is having a concert, and it will be available on YouTube because it will have already had passed by the time this comes out three days ago. We had a concert. You can go Google it. It is under Mile High Freedom Bands, and it is entitled, aptly, Infinite Diversity, which is an ongoing theme in the realm of Star Trek. Yep. And we do play Star Trek. It's the first thing we play. It is. So there you go. There you go. That's all I have. Yeah. That's all I got. That was Pan Am Flight 121. Thanks, Megan, for requesting that. It was an interesting one. I'm assuming you requested it because you're a Trekkie, but let us know if we're wrong. Maybe it's because the engine fell off and she also wants to be like, Nick's a liar. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Could be. That being said, thank you to all our patrons. As always, you guys are amazing. Thank you to all the listeners. You guys are also amazing because without you guys, we can't do this. Period. We, We wouldn't be able to, you know geek out about airplane crashes yeah star trek and star trek for some reason (laughs) thank you so much for listening again thank you for your stories we will do a gigantic episode of all the stories from march april and may and we will edit it frantically (laughs) and then we're going on a cruise and then then we are gone so we we will not be responding to any social media direct messages emails anything between may 29th and june 19th yeah. Yeah. To so be fair. To if be safe. You send us anything. If you try to message us, if first of all, we love when you do that. Thank you. We will um, see it all when we get when back. When we get back. 
Or I mean, we'll not be, we'll probably we might be able to see, see it, it but we won't that. be able to answer it until yeah. we get back. So we keep that be, in mind. We'll be taking our time to have a nice vacation. And we won't be using our phones a good portion of the time for multiple reasons. One of which is we are not in the country we live in, and therefore there are uh, roaming fees. Yep. Very bad. So, there you go. If you need anything before then, or you want to get anything in before then, message us before the 28th. Okay. With that... We hope you have a safe and healthy week, and we will catch you all next week. Keep your speed up! Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.